Amen. You may remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We are continuing in Exodus, now continuing in chapter 4, not now in chapter 4, we pick up in verse 18, continuing our sermon series, Believe and Belong, pick up in verse 18. So Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders and the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. The word of the Lord. Father, we seek you again this morning, imploring you to work through your word in our lives, that it may work on our hearts and our minds, impacting our hands, the way we live our life. We don't sit here just to learn new things about you. We sit here to have our hearts transformed by your gospel message. Sit here because we want to believe that what we hear is true. You come to us, you meet us here through Andrew this morning. He brings us your word. May you speak through him. May you work in our lives. May you continue your kingdom work here in Christchurch, Grand Rapids, as well as across the globe. We pray all of this in Christ's beautiful and risen name. Amen. You may be seated. One of my favorite uh, book series as a kid, I'm sure this was part of growing up in West Michigan, was a series called Journey Through the Night. Uh, It's a story about a family going through uh, the World War II in the Netherlands, uh, part of the resistance and the, the long night of the war, losing people, seeing people die, rescuing people, all of that. Uh, And it reminds us that I think by nature, a lot of us don't love the night. You know, we talk about journey through the night, and we we know it's going to be a hard journey, that it's uh, some rough 
patch uh, ahead of us. But there's a certain sense in which not only do we fear the dark, uh, but we also fear the light. Frederick Buechner puts it this way, if there's a terror about darkness because we cannot see, there is also a terror about light because we can see. There's a terror about light because much of what we see in the light about ourselves and about our world, we would rather not see or we would rather have not seen. As we come to this particular story in Exodus 4, uh, it is a light moment in the life of Moses. You might say they've, they've all been that way. Uh, Moses is, uh, we're, we're seeing into Moses' heart in, in very real ways. But it, it even takes us another step in that direction this morning. And as such, it takes us a step deeper into our own hearts. Uh, and, and you may see some things. I think God has certainly shown me some things that... I would rather not see, certainly that I would rather not have seen. So I want to walk through this passage, and it's a confusing passage. It, you know, you read the commentators on this, there's differences of opinion, especially when we come to uh, verses 23 to 25, just how those are to be interpreted. Um, there is, uh, it's just strange, uh, it's, it's a view of God that we don't often hear talked about, uh, especially in this particular day and age. So there, there are a lot of things packed in here, but I think we can make our way through it. And I want to begin by starting, uh, and that's where we'll start today. It's with starting. Moses actually does start. You remember when we met Moses last, uh, verse 13 of chapter 4, God has called him out of the burning bush and said, I want you to go into Egypt and I want you to do these things before Pharaoh. I want you to lead the people out. And Moses says, can you please send somebody else? I, I, I don't, I don't want to go. And, and, and the Lord says, look it, I am going to give you Aaron. You're going to go. And so finally, verse 18, Moses begins. He goes to Jethro uh, and he says, can I go back to Egypt? And Jethro, his father-in-law, his employer, says yes. And so finally, at 80 years old, Moses begins his life's major calling. And I think it highlights for us the importance of starting. Whatever your particular calling is right now, it always begins with the first step. Of course, that's cliche, right? You know, the journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. But there's something to it. We're going to see in just a minute that, that Moses is not where he is supposed to be, but he started. He, he began, and it's that beginning which is going to allow God to continue to work in his life and to bring him to the place where he wants him to be. And it asks us the question, it begs the question, you know, what is it that God is calling us to begin? What is it that God is calling us to start, maybe that we don't want to, that we're saying, God, can you please send somebody else? I don't want to do it. It's a conversation you don't want to have relationally. It's a population of people or a neighbor that you don't want to reach out to or come close to, befriend, because they're so different than you, and you sense that it could be so difficult. 
Uh, it's a job change. It's a, uh, it's a call to go on the mission field or to church plant or whatever it might be. God is coming to you and is impressing upon your heart through the scripture reading, through the testimony of the Spirit, through conversations with friends. You have to do this. And we resist. We start by starting. That, that first step. Uh, there's a story, I, I love the Lord of the Rings, and it's a story about journeying uh, all throughout. I know some of you like Lord of the Rings, some of you don't. Uh, I think you can connect with uh, this particular part of the story in it. Aragorn, Gimli, the dwarf, and Legolas the elf are, are sitting around talking about the hobbits that they have lost. Uh, they lost Merry and Pippin, and uh, I think it's Gimli says, you know, I wish that they had never even come on the journey. Uh, and then they're reminded, you know, but Gandalf chose them. Well, maybe Gandalf chose wrongly because Gandalf himself was lost in the mines of Moria. Uh, but then Aragorn says this, and, and it's very wise, and I think you'll see the connection. He says, the counsel of Gandalf was not founded on the foreknowledge of safety for himself or for others. There are some things that it's better to begin than to refuse, even though their end may be dark. There are some things that it's better to begin than to refuse, even though their end may be dark. Whatever it is that God is calling you on, clearly, you know, because none of us are omniscient, we don't know all things, uh, we don't know how it's going to turn out. It, it, it may go well, it may go seemingly ill, but that is not a reason not to begin. We, we are called to start. Moses starts, and uh, it's, it's a journey, as we'll see in just a minute. But notice Moses doesn't go alone. Verse 20, he takes in his hand, do you see it there? The staff of God. Now, just a chapter ago, it was just a staff. Uh, it wasn't the staff of God. It, it was a stick of wood that Moses grabbed. Maybe he had fashioned it, formed it in a particular way, and it was helpful for him feeding sheep. But it was not the staff of God. It didn't have the ability to turn into a serpent. It didn't have the ability to part the Red Sea. It didn't have the ability to strike the rock and have water come out. But this is what God made this ordinary stick of wood. He made it into the staff of God. And Moses took that with him as he started his journey. And it's a reminder to you and to me that we do not journey alone. You know, God loves to take the ordinary and make it the extraordinary. And you're like, well, I don't, I don't have a staff of God. God hasn't done, given me anything like that. Here's the thing. You are the staff of God. You know, we just got done singing about it, right? We are his witnesses. You know, the, the staff in those days bore witness to the testimony of God. You and I are to be those witnesses. We are that very staff. We are the ordinary pieces of wood that God transforms into something powerful that can display his glory. It's Ascension Sunday, right? We are remembering that Jesus has ascended into heaven where he sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he rules 
over heaven and earth. His power flows through Him and through His people. Brothers and sisters, we start not alone, but we start with the power and the presence and the promises of God so that no matter how ordinary you feel, no matter how ordinary you recognize yourself to be, you are the staff of God. It's amazing. It's good news. But the second part of the journey is the stop. So we have the start. Now we come to the stop. And this is where it gets weird, right? Uh, verse Verse 24, we see this, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Now, there, there are so many pronouns here, and we, we would say, okay, who, who are the antecedents? Where, where do they go with? And there's a couple of different thoughts. So some people say that uh, the, the pronoun, you know, who is it that God uh, was seeking to kill? Some people say connects to verse 23 where it's talking about the firstborn son. Uh, Israel is my firstborn son. Say to Pharaoh, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And so because they're talking about firstborn sons, God has met Moses and his family at this lodging place along the way and is going to put Moses' firstborn son, Gershon, uh, to death. Other people say, no, that, that doesn't seem to fit with some of the other things that go on because Moses is the one who is anointed uh, with the blood and just some of the rest of the thing. It makes more sense if God is actually meeting Moses on the way to kill him uh, because we know back all the way in verse 14, God is, is, is needing, is wanting, is expecting to be obeyed completely. You remember when Moses in verse 13 says, send somebody else, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And, and, and now he started this journey, but, but what we find out here is that he's still holding back to some degree. The issue here appears to be circumcision, namely the circumcision of his firstborn son, Gershon, uh, and, and he hasn't identified completely with the Israelites. The Israelite custom, the Israelite command, the sign of God's covenant promise with the Israelites was the circumcision of the males. And Moses has done this. Moses has had some identity confusion. We talked about that uh, a little bit throughout this. You know, on the one hand, he sort of identified with the Israelites, even though he was raised as a prince of Egypt. On the other hand, he's identified as an Egyptian when he comes to the well in chapter 2. So Moses is in between two worlds, and this is one of those places where it comes out. And God says, this is not going to do. You know, whether it's he meets Gershon or Moses, the issue is you're not fully submitted to the plan. You're not fully submitted to the identity with which I am asking you to bear. That is being the representative of my covenant people, and yet you are not willing to submit yourself to the covenant sign. 
So it's serious. And, and I think there are a few things that we can take away from this. And the first is just this. You know, God is not tame. Uh, again, we, we don't love these kind of stories. You know, the, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. This is just the kind of reason why I quit going to church. You know, you're always talking about an angry God. This is the reason why I like the New Testament better than the Old Testament. It's got so much more grace in it than the anger of the Old Testament. But who do we think God is? I mean, do we think that God is domesticated like my little shepu? Uh, or that God, you know, runs around and does my bidding? Yeah. Some of you love Narnia, I know. Some of you even have it on your license plates. Uh, but, uh, you know, in it we see God, or, <laughs> whoa, okay, we do not see that. Uh, in it we see this exchange between the children, and they're in Narnia, and they're hearing about Aslan for the first time, uh, and they say, oh, he, he must be safe. And the beavers say, no, 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 you know, what are you talking about safe? Aslan is not a tame lion but he's good. And this is the, the God that we meet here. He is not domesticated. He is wild. He is ferocious. He is, he is anything but tame. But he's good as he continues to pursue his people. Some of us, you know, one of the you know, some of the, the reason why we, we journey difficultly is we haven't adequately considered who God is. Uh, he, you know, we, we see him more as a butler there to meet our needs rather than for who he really is in all of his holiness. Secondly, you know, God cares about the little things. You might say, like, what's the big deal? I mean, circumcision, we're, we're talking about an inch of flesh. Uh, you know, is this really enough to, to put somebody to death, whether it be Moses, Moses or Gershon? You know, is, is this really that important? And apparently the answer is yes. You know, it is that important. Now, now why is it important? Well, here, here's why it's important, or at least one thing that we can say, is that it's the little things that betray the attitudes of our hearts. It's the little things that betray what it is that we are surrendered to. We might say, you know, the covenant sign at this point, which was circumcision. I mean, it's such a small thing. We're not saved through circumcision. That's clear in the New Testament, right? And, and the Jews had to reckon with that, that we need to be circumcised by the circumcision that's not made with hands, the circumcision of the heart. It's not the ritual act of circumcision that saves us. And yet... God says there's something about the ritual act of circumcision and undergoing it in the Old Testament when it was the covenant side that betrays where our hearts are. It betrays our, our, our allegiance to the Lord, our belief in the way that He has put forward, our willingness to follow after Him. Uh, Here's the way one of the, uh, Alex Motier, who is one of the uh, commentators, says, the covenant signs mark out the people of God and signify that God is, uh, is on our side. 
the gifts of sealing and promise. That's what circumcision did for the Israelites. Disobedience or an unwillingness to undergo that is in effect saying we have no need of God, we have no need of grace, and we have no need of his privileges. Now, how do we apply that? We, we can bring it over in a couple of ways, right? We can certainly bring it over to the covenant signs uh, that, that we experience on a New Testament sign, namely the table of the Lord, sacrament, as well as baptism. Uh, baptism has come in place of circumcision. Baptism is not only for males, but it's for females. Uh, it's not only for Israelites, but it's for all God's people. Does baptism save you? No. Baptism doesn't save you. Uh, you know, your heart and, and the transformative, regenerative work of the Lord in your heart uh, is, is what will save you. That's what makes us right before the Lord. Uh, but baptism is a step of obedience. It's a step whereby we bring ourselves, if you are an adult and you have never undergone baptism, or in faith we bring our young people, we believe, uh, our children, uh, into to receive the sign of the covenant because we acknowledge that we need the Lord. And if we don't do that, if we say, well, I'm just going to you know, walk my own way through life, so it's not that we're bap not baptized that is the problem with the Lord. It's, it's what our hearts are saying. That, that's where the problem is. So we can talk about it that way. Talk about it church membership. I see a lot of that uh, in this day and age of church membership. Well, yeah, I love the Lord. Uh, where are you in fellowship? Where's people? Where do you work out? Well, I, you know, I, I just catch it on the radio or a podcast or television. I don't really have a community that I'm walking with. You know, how is it that, that we want to say we are one thing and yet not identify ourselves in a particular way? This is challenging for all of us, I think, especially for our young people, as there's, there's so many options and so many ways to go. Do you have to be a member of a church to be saved? No, absolutely not. But what is your heart saying if you're unwilling to affiliate and be accountable and, and do all of those things that God gives us the local expression of his body to do? And, and then you can just go on and on and on because here's the thing. Uh, none of us is any better than Moses, right? We are all right here. We all have things that we hold back. We all have things that that we say, yes, I'm willing to follow you this far. You know, in a little while, we'll, we'll bring tithes and offerings. Oftentimes, when it comes to our money, we're willing to say, yes, God, I will follow you, but don't ask me for that. <laughs> don't ask me because I've got certain things that I want and desire. You want me to trust you? No, I can't do that. I'd rather put some money aside, and if I can put the money aside, then I will be okay. We, we all have areas in our lives that we hold back. And, and, and this is what the light does. The light comes and exposes us. But it's a good thing. I mean, we don't like the light. We'd rather that, you know, God let us have our little areas unexposed. We would rather be like Moses and just go on the journey and let's not bother about that whole circumcision thing. But God exposes us because 
He wants to draw us deeper into his grace. And that's the other thing you see about this passage here is that there's a way out. You know, there's a way out, and God stops Moses to show him the way through. And the way through is through the blood. The way through is through the blood. So, we don't know exactly how it was that the Lord sought to put Moses uh, to death. We'll assume that it's Moses here. It's the reading that I prefer. Um, Perhaps it was a disease. Uh, and, and it was clear that Moses was going to die. He was weakened. You know, one of the questions that we have if it's Gershom is why didn't Moses circumcise Gershom? Was he even unwilling with the Lord right there? Uh, others have said Moses, you know, God sought to put him to death. And note, the grace of God, God had the ability just to zap him, right? Uh, I mean, he could have just put him to death, but he, he seeks to put him to death. There, there's a time lapse there, and, and that's where we're living right now, right? We are living in the day of grace. We are living in that time lapse. Today is the day of salvation. If you hear my voice, says the Lord, you know, repent, believe, find grace. I mean, God is gracious in extending that time. Uh, Moses, sick can't do anything. He says to Zipporah, we need to, force, we need to circumcise him. Now, Gershon is older by this time. So going back to Genesis 22 and the story of the binding of Isaac, uh, you know, Gershon had to be complicit in this. I mean, she wasn't going to overpower him. This wasn't a baby uh, that she was circumcising. Um, but the, they were able to circumcise the firstborn, and then she takes the, the foreskin, and she touches his feet. Now, the word there is naga, uh, which means to touch or to throw at, fling, sprinkle. Here's why this is all important. God has, for the very first time in verse 23, talked about, 22 actually, talks about Israel as his firstborn son. That's the first time that language comes into the scriptures. Uh, We know it from the New Testament, you know, the principle of sonship, uh, that we belong to God as children, sons, and daughters. Uh, But this is the first time it comes into the scriptures. And and it's it's that principle, and God sees his people as a son that sets up uh, the, the ongoing conflict between God and Pharaoh over his firstborn. And the whole issue of Passover, when you finally come to the end of the ten plagues and God is going to lead the people out, the last one is that the angel of death will pass over Egypt. And those who are not sprinkled by the blood, the word in in chapter 12 is Naga, who the blood has not touched their doorposts, the firstborn son will be killed. Uh, but if the blood has touched the doorpost, there would be life. This is such a major motif in the Old Testament that leads us to the New Testament fulfillment of Passover, which is Jesus Christ. When Jesus sits at the table with his disciples, And he says, uh, the cup of thanksgiving, which is my blood, poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. He is saying, because you have been touched by the blood, 
you have been delivered from the death that you otherwise deserve. Uh, my wrath is falling on you deservedly. Moses, you got a foot in each camp. He comes to me and he says, Andrew, you have a foot in each camp. You are not completely surrendered. You are not following me. But because you have been touched by the blood, there is hope for you. Do you, do you see in the midst of the holiness on display, the grace of God that comes because he doesn't demand Moses' firstborn. He gives his own firstborn. He gives his only begotten son that whosoever should believe on him should not perish but have everlasting life. And it's his blood that is poured out. And it's our life that is received. We receive life because of what Jesus has done. So... Who is God? You know, He's the Holy One. Uh, who are we? We're, we're the ones that hold back. You know, little things that betray where our heart is. But who is God in the face of that? He's the one whose grace meets His holiness because of His love for His people, because of His willingness to step in and make a way through. Incidentally, it's like the fourth or fifth time that Moses has been saved by a woman. Uh, you know, his mother, uh, the Hebrew midwives, uh, Pharaoh's daughter, now his wife, Zipporah. You know, some people read the scriptures and say, hey, you just don't see how uh, you know, so many men and how are women heroes I mean, over and over in this story. Uh, over and against the culture of that day, even, the place of women is, is exalted uh, and, and their faithfulness and obedience. But it's for all of us, right? We, we all see that no matter where we are, what our role is in the story, uh, we all have the opportunity to serve. You know, we oftentimes talk about Moses uh, but Zipporah in his life, and Sipra, and Pua, and uh, Jacobed, all of these names that we talk about uh, less, they were just as important uh, for God's plan. And, and so whether your role is up front and your name is, is mentioned, or whether you are behind the scenes... Uh, and, and your name is less mentioned, whether you're male or female, kid, adult, elderly, whatever it might be, we all have a role to play in the story as we go forward. The last thing I want to highlight from this passage, and it's basically the last sort of paragraph that we look at here, verses 27 to 31, is I want you to see the surrender. As the story goes on, right, it starts... But then God, in His, you know, gracious holiness, comes and stops Moses and says, you know, you, you can't keep going this way. You, you can't have a foot in both camps. You've, you've got to trust me and believe. Moses seems to get it. 
He gets it, and one of the ways that we see it is in verse 28, when, God, when Moses finally meets Aaron, his brother, who he hasn't seen in, in decades. He hasn't seen him probably in 40 years. I mean, imagine the reunion as they come together and they see each other after all that time. And, and you see, it's highlighted here, Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. It could have just said Moses told him the words of the Lord or Moses told him, showed him the signs, but it emphasized that it's all. And, and I think that goes back to verse 18, you know, where in, he goes to Jethro and, and he says, let me go back to Egypt to see if anybody's alive. Well, well, that's not exactly what God told him, right? You know, God told him to go back and lead the people out, but, but Moses was less than forthright with Jethro at that point. An, another indication that Moses' heart was not fully submitted to the Lord, but now he is surrendered. He is telling Aaron all. He is not leaving out anything. I'm sure he told him about what just happened and how Zipporah saved him and how the Lord's hand was stayed in his own life. And that gave them confidence to go forward and gather together all the elders of Israel and to give them all the words that he had. Moses is surrendered in his own heart. And notice the result. The result, it's verse 31, uh, as, as Moses uh, does, says all the words and gives the signs in the sight of the people, the people believed. Uh, and that's not just an intellectual belief. We see that as we go on when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that he had seen their affliction. They bowed their heads and they worshiped. You know, Moses' life going forward, the words that he has to say, calls forth a submitted, surrendered life on the part of the people of Israel. And this is where God is inviting us to live, to live surrendered. Whether you are Moses, the leader, you know, or in the area of your life where you are Moses taking a journey on having a step of leadership, or whether you are simply in the crowd, will you bow your heads and worship? Will you receive the guidance of the Lord? Will, will you live submitted? Don't try to sit on the throne of your own heart. Don't try to keep one foot in the kingdom and, and one foot uh, under your own control. We can't have the kingdom without having the king. And God invites us to live surrendered. Came across a story recently that highlighted this. Mary Carr, she's a author, biographer, um, she wrote her own memoirs, uh, probably most famous for the Liars Club back in 1995. She wrote a follow-up to that. It's called Cherry, and she tells a story in there about taking pills when she was 14 years old uh, with the intent to commit suicide. She was 14. Her parents had gone out. She took a bunch of pills. She obviously didn't commit suicide. She's writing her memoirs, um, so, but she got very sick. And when her parents came home, uh, 
you know, they thought she had food poisoning. She didn't tell them everything that she had done, and they nursed her very tenderly uh, during that time, and uh, they asked her, they said, Mary, is there, is there any food that you think that you could eat? And uh, she said, well, I think maybe I could eat a plum. Well, it wasn't plum season. Uh, she went to bed, uh, and when she woke the next day, she found her dad walking into her room with a bushel full of plums. He had gotten in his truck in East Texas and driven all the way to Arkansas, uh, picked up a bushel of plums and brought them back into Mary's room. And that made such an impression on her. She never tried to take her life again. She, she turned her life around in terms of her choices and her careers. And here's what she says about it. She says, it's when you sink your teeth into the plum that you make a promise. The skin is still warm from riding in the sun, daddy's truck. The nectar runs down your chin. And you snap out of it. We are snapped out of it. Never again will you lay a hand against yourself. Not so long as there are plums to eat and somebody, anybody, who gives enough to haul them for you. That's how you acquire the resolution for survival that the coming years are about to demand. You don't earn it. It's given. Brothers and sisters, we, we're all on a journey. Through the dark, through the light, and what we see today is that you have a father who loves you enough to haul the plums from heaven to earth so that you can sink your teeth into the sweetness of his mercy in which he's given his firstborn son to pay the ultimate price. As we come to the table, we're encouraged metaphorically to let the juices run down our chin and to know the goodness of the Lord that pursues us. Even when we are unwilling to submit, surrender all, He continues to come after us and says, this is how much I love you. You don't earn it. It's given. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. Thank you for its power, its potency. We thank you for its truth. And Lord, as we've been talking about this morning, there are certain aspects of our life that we would like to keep in the dark. But today you've shined a searchlight, as it were, and you've exposed the areas where we want to hang back, where we want to have all the good things about the kingdom, but we don't really want to be surrendered to King Jesus. And so, Father, as we approach your table today, as your table is laid out in front of us, may we, either for the first time, or for the hundredth time, uh, find ourselves looking to you in faith. May we find ourselves grasping out for your finished work that finishes all of our incompleteness. It, it gives us life where we only find death. Meet us now, we pray, in this table. In Jesus' name, amen.